0: Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body-inclusive non-diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body-inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. everyone and welcome back to this next episode of the mindful dietitian podcast. I'm joining you from Wurundjeri Country in the southeast corner of Australia and I'd like to pay my genuine respects to the traditional owners of this land as well as elders past, present and those still to come. I am so grateful to be a visitor on this beautiful country and thank you so much to the extraordinary custodianship of our first Australians. Today I'm talking again and I'll tell you why again with Christy Harrison, an anti-diet registered dietitian, nutritionist, certified intuitive eating counselor, and author of the book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating. So you may remember that Christy was one of my very first guests about 60 episodes ago. You'll probably know her as the host of Food Sight Podcast, where she has interviewed literally hundreds of extraordinary leaders from all over the world, from the fields of advocacy, activism, and body liberation spaces. I highly recommend you check it out if you have not already. Christy has a background in journalism before she turned her hand to nutrition studies where she's really made a name for herself as being a tenacious and tireless advocate. You can find Christy all over social media with links in this episode's show notes and learn more about Christy and her work at christyharrison.com. In this episode, we don't waste too much time getting right into the nitty-gritty of things, including Christy sharing the unexpected ways her book, Anti-Diet, which was published in 2019, has become very relevant. How diet culture stops us from participating in life and in revolutions. Why and how we can move away from the binary and binary thinking. The importance of understanding how we orient in the world and the inner processes of, quote-unquote, doing the work how we can use our interceptive awareness as our guide when doing anti-oppression work, what we need to think about before extending anti-diet messaging to other areas of oppression, and a fantastic lesson in how we can avoid cultural appropriation. It was a super fun episode to record and I hope you really enjoy it. If you did ever want to give this podcast a rating and review, I just want to say a huge thank you in advance. Uh, The best way to do that is to head to Apple Podcasts or your platform of choice. And I just wanted to say, um, again, a huge thank you for all the lovely comments that are there. It's so wonderful to know that these conversations actually do help people. You know, sometimes when you're doing a podcast, it feels like a platform that nobody tells you not to do. So, and that's what I kind of like about it is it seems as if they're the conversations that I would be having hopefully with people anyway, and I just happened to press record and then I just happened to put them on a platform where I can share them with you. So, thank you for your lovely feedback. I really do appreciate it. Although I and we wish we could get back into live training. Ah, it's online learning. That's a place to be. So, if you're looking for some opportunities to boost your learning and growth or some great resources to keep you going or that you can share with colleagues or other health professionals, you'll find a whole stack of them on the Mindful Dietitian website, which is www.themindfuldietitian.com.au. You'll also find out more about supervision for dietitians, or what I've come to name as reflective supervision, and take a look at past episodes of this podcast. So there's plenty to keep you occupied while the world is in the upside down. Okay, so let's get on to the main event, and here's my chat with Christy Harrison. Well, hello there, Christy Harrison. How are you doing, my friend? Wonderful to have oh. you on.
1: Oh, my God. So great to be back on. So good to talk with you, as always. I'm, I'm happy to be here.
0: So uh, you are one of my very first guests on the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I meant to go back and look at the number. I think it was maybe... Three or four, something, something in the, in the single digits, anyway. So, um, you know, I was clearly very, very keen to be uh, having you, having your voice, you know, very present on on the podcast as somebody who I uh, learn so much from every single day, and I know so many folks in our communities really, uh, you know, um, look to you for uh, messaging and your amazing guests on your own podcast, Food Psych, but you know what, that was a couple of years ago now, at least a couple of years ago. So I know what you've been up to in those few years, but why don't you give us a bit of a, um, a, 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 well, I don't know what you would call it. Maybe a speedboat view. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, I'll, I'll I'll speed everyone through what I've been up to. I mean, it's so funny because, yeah, I can't even remember when that was. What, 2016 probably? Maybe probably. 2017? Oh, my gosh. And, yeah, so much has happened. So I don't know if that was before or after our time together at Krapalu when the election happened. And that was a whole thing. And we, we processed that um, in a lovely space um and you know since then i've really been focusing in even more on like the social justice angle and the roots of diet culture that are in various forms of oppression um in 2017 no maybe early 20 i think it was early 2018 i got a book deal and i wrote a book um it was early 2017. I don't even remember. Anyway, I wrote a book. It's called Anti Diet: Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating. And it's, it's fantastic.
0: Hi- the- if you haven't got it, do.
1: Thank you. Please. Thank you. Yeah, it's it was a wonderful experience to write and a labor of love, but also just very fulfilling because it culminated. It brought together so much of what I have been working on with the podcast for. past seven years. And, you know, before that, even I was researching a different book idea that I was going to write and that didn't end up happening, but it kind of morphed into the basis for the podcast. And then that helped support this book that I eventually wrote. So it's really like the combination of like 10 years of research and writing and speaking and thinking in this area of dismantling diet culture and looking at what diet culture is and where its roots are and how it harms us and how it's related to other systems of oppression like racism and misogyny and, you know, bigotry in general. And um, so, yeah, the the process of writing the book was just so fulfilling. And it came out in late 2019 mm-hmm. about, uh, I guess, almost, oh, wow, six months ago now. Which is wild and um and it, it's you know six months in the world has been sort of a chaotic time too, because we had I had a book tour that was going really well, and then covid nineteen hit and then uh, we 've had a lot of you know revolution happening in the u s too so it's it's been an interesting time to be a new author with a book to promote and you know having interesting kind of unexpected ways that the book is becoming relevant, like people. Yeah you know, with this revolution that's happening in the U S right now for racial justice, a lot of people are discovering the book and finding like, oh my God, diet culture has these racist roots. You know, I, I referenced Sabrina strings in my book and the research and some other scholars who've done really great work and research around how diet culture has these, these roots in racism and xenophobia and, um, colonialism that, you know, Are still with us to this day, that still permeate everything that's going on with diet culture. And I keep saying diet culture, and I'm sure you've talked about it a million times on the podcast, but just to kind of give anyone a definition who doesn't know what I mean by that term, what I mean by that is a system of beliefs and really, you know, in Western culture, it's like the dominant system of beliefs that demonizes some foods and elevates others. Um, Promotes weight loss as a means of attaining higher status and looks down on people in larger bodies while elevating people in smaller ones and oppresses people who don't match up with its supposed picture of health. And so, you know, Western culture really by and large has those beliefs about food and health. And that is what I have been working to try to understand and dismantle and help people break free of so that they can actually reclaim their lives for bigger and better things, including. Participating in revolution, participating in social change that is so needed because, you know, as I've discovered from other people, you know, working with clients, but also my own lived experience, when you're dieting, when you're obsessed with food and body size, when you're obsessed with shrinking yourself, you're metaphorically shrinking yourself too. You're actually cutting yourself off from the capability of opening up to what's going on in the larger world and participating in it in a really full and present way you know you're cutting yourself off from presence to what is going on and to your relationships and to your work and you know your life in general but i think it's especially relevant in a moment like this when we need everybody we need all hands on deck to be fighting for justice and liberation and we can't have you know it's it's a tragedy and it's unfair to have people that are so caught up in their own food and body obsessions that they can't really be there supporting the change they want to see in the world
0: yeah absolutely 100 percent. and i remember um you wrote a post it was a number of months ago now and it's been a, a thread through um, some of your messaging is being around you know we we're not going to be able to tear down patriarchy when we're hungry, essentially, you know, we have to be really well fueled and really well nourished and that just doesn't, it's not just limited to food, is it? It's all the ways in which we can be nourished from um, whether that's our spirituality or our sense of connectedness, um, uh, you know, family, community, all those things that really help us to see ourselves as whole um, and effective human beings in the world.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I said in that post and and in the book too, like, it's hard to smash the patriarchy on an empty stomach, a head full of food and body concern, you know, head full of food and body concerns. And really that's, I think that applies also to smashing racism and white supremacy, to smashing Uh ableism and homophobia. And, you know, all of these things kind of have the same roots in white supremacy. Actually, I think a lot of it goes back to white supremacy, but also like cis hetero patriarchy. And, and it's hard to like tear down on those systems literally when we cannot concentrate on these ideas, because they're kind of big ideas and learning to think differently and, you know, learning, relearning and unlearning things that we have picked up from the culture and learning, learning new liberatory frameworks is, like, it takes a lot of bandwidth. It takes a lot of mental energy. And, you know, you can feel really exhausted by it even when you are well-nourished, even when you are well-fueled with food and with you know people around you to support you and mental health support and space and you know privileges to have enough food and um to have you know a roof over your head and things like that so imagine if you're you know if you're starving, right? If you're mm-hmm. if you're engaging in disordered eating behaviors that are taking up all of your mental space and time and energy. And also if you're food insecure, or yes. if you're experiencing racist violence and the trauma and constant re-traumatization of that, you know, all of those things, all of those, you know, ways in which we can be sort of taken away from our purpose, um, you know, really includes diet culture. And I think in this day and age, especially, a lot of people who consider themselves progressive have beliefs about food and body stuff mm-hmm. that actually are really antithetical to what they believe in other areas are really antithetical to their core values such as you know cutting out certain foods like going gluten free not because of celiac disease or wheat allergy but because you know it's supposedly the thing to do right or um only eating you know sustainable organic locally grown, quote unquote, whole foods, you know, plant-based, whatever, you know, having that take up so much of your mental time and space that you can't actually devote time and energy to the things that are maybe larger issues in the world, you know, and I know a lot of people, you know, and myself included really value the environment and trying to make a difference in how we shop and how we purchase. But as I've experienced in my own history and I write about in the book too, like that can take you, if you get down that rabbit hole too far and you get to a place where, you know, you're in this sort of diet culture, thinking about wellness and about food, where it's like, you know, you have to think about what's pure and what's clean and, and what's good and what's bad and is okay and not okay. And there are these binary ways of thinking about food that are also really tied up in sort of, um, covert beliefs that thinness is is rightness and thinness is the way to be and that, you know, if you're eating the quote unquote wrong foods, then you're gonna get fat and there's something wrong with that. You know, all of those are sort of latent beliefs in this new modern guise of diet culture that I call the wellness diet. And yet a lot of really progressive people believe in the wellness diet and believe in the tenets of people like Michael Pollan and Marion Nessel and Eric Schlosser, some of the sort of early intellectual forerunners of what, what we have now in this kind of quote unquote wellness world. Um, And in the book, I really trace the, the ways in which those folks thinking is very rooted in weight, weight stigma, you know, fat phobia and in, um, very black and white binary
0: thinking about food it's interesting christy you're talking about binary ways of thinking um, one of the things that i really appreciate about uh, lucy Aframore, who is a uk-based uh, activist she is a poetician uh, that's how she describes herself she's a poet and a dietitian and somebody whose work i deeply admire and I remember when Lucy was in Australia at the beginning of last year, one of the many things that I took away is how we can move away from the binary. And Lucy offered this really lovely, um, um, really lovely, I guess, idea to hold in mind. And that is look for a third option like where is the third option when we feel like we ourselves are getting caught up in a binary. Um, and there are so many ways that we can do this, of course, that might involve food or it might not involve food, but that if, if one thing is seen as good and worthwhile, then if it's not that, then it's not seen as good and worthwhile. And where are the, where are the broader options? Um, I just really appreciated that because what Lucy really talks about is, you know, if we are going to be moving away from the binary, which is so harmful in so many ways, then we ourselves need to be thoughtful about how we are um, adding. She just calls it, where's your third option? You know, where's the extra, where where are your options here? I really appreciate that. I
1: love that. Yeah. And I, have been thinking a lot about that lately too, because you know, in the in the current cultural context that I'm in, in the U.S., and there's, you know, a lot of protests for racial justice and a, a larger discussion in general about, about racism, there's some of the same binary thinking kind of playing out where it's like either you're doing it right or you're doing it wrong and you're mm-hmm. with us or you're against us. And, you know, there's some really important activists and scholars that I've been following and learning from about this Um, Andrea Renee Johnson is one of them who talks about the fact that, you know, if we're going to be dismantling white supremacy, which really prioritizes this binary thinking, you know, it's white supremacy is also a very black and white way of seeing the world. If we're trying to dismantle that, we can't be using the same tools. We can't be using the same framework and the same way of thinking that, you know, we're just recreating white supremacy if we're, doing anti-racism work that is you know focused on contempt is the word she uses you know tearing tearing some people down and elevating others and you know the who is getting torn down or elevated switches depending on you know where you are in the in the movement but that there's a lot of people who are sort of thinking like that and to really dismantle white supremacy, we need to pull out and, you know, think in, in that third way, you know, in that, Uh that way that's not this or that and not, you know, having contempt for those people over there and we're the good ones over here, but, you know, thinking in a more nuanced way. And, and that's really been influencing my work lately too, because, you know, I think, I mean, my book is called anti-diet, right? It's like anti this thing. And I think there is a real place for, calling out systems of oppression like anti-diet anti-racism you know here are the things that we are fighting against here are the systems that we are trying to dismantle and when we're doing that we can't just sort of jump to this is the good way over here right yes and and recognizing too that you know, I've this is something I've also learned from some anti racism activists like Um, Ijoma Uluo and Ibram X. Kendi talk about this with anti racism that it's not like a discrete act, like now you are anti racist, it's a yes. practice, it's something that you're always learning and striving for. And that you know, Ijoma Uluo says, like, the beauty of it is that you don't have to be like totally free from racism, you can be recognizing that you still have some racist beliefs conditioned into you because we all do living in racist white supremacist culture and you're actively working against them and you're actively working to dismantle them. And I think that's really, you know, obviously racism and diet culture are two very different things, although they're kind of intertwined and have similar roots and, um, you know, impact people in some of the similar in some similar ways, but also are very, very different in their impacts um, in many ways. But I think, you know, I, I've been sort of taking that into my work in anti-diet too, in my anti-diet space, you know, thinking about uh, anti being anti-diet as a practice mm-hmm. and ongoing, you know, sort of orientation to the world that you're you're committed to dismantling diet culture wherever it lives. But you know that it it does live in you. It lives in all of us, you know, that there's going to be moments of diet culture that pop up for you that, you know, you don't have to like self-flagellate about and say oh my god i'm i'm the worst person in the world because now i'm you know i'm still doing diet culture but actually just becoming aware of them questioning them letting go of them you know doing the work to unlearn and dismantle the things that you're still holding on to from diet culture and that it's hard and it's lifelong work and there's going to be moments of resistance and moments where you feel like you can't go any further and then suddenly you might you might make a quantum leap and and go further and it you know it's kind of stops and starts and But it's, it's a practice that I think is worth engaging in because it is working toward justice.
0: Yes, yes. So I really love what you said a short time ago about this being a way that we orient to the world. And I think that I just wanted to, to kind of draw that particular statement um, forward, like bring that forward because um you know for dietitians that are wanting to be doing um uh, anti-diet work in the world that are um that are you know wanting to dismantle um systems of uh, within diet culture but are not too sure how this intersects with other experiences like, um, for example, um, disability or folks, um, from LGBTQI communities or, um, uh, black and indigenous people of color communities. Um, it's, it's a, I, th- I think the way that we orient to the world. And also, I wonder if you might speak to the way that we orient to our own experiences as well and the experiences of others. Um, so, you know, being able to maintain this sense of maybe of curiosity about our own edges, um, about the ways in which that we have related to food and eating and uh, bodies, particularly if we've been trained in our traditional dietetic methodology, mm-hmm. which has kind of trained us to orient towards our own experiences and the experiences of others in a particular way. Um, Yeah. So I'm so curious about the, you know, this sense of orienting, particularly if we have um, been trained very traditionally and yet we are very committed to kind of um, unpacking the anti-diet work and are then curious Mm -hmm. about how this looks in a, in a broader intersectional sense.
1: Oh yeah. Such a good question. I think, I mean, yeah, so many of us, I think, who are trained in the traditional dietetics model come in with this orientation towards food and eating and bodies and our own experience of like right and wrong. You know, mm-hmm. in the U.S., the the dietitian's national um, organization motto is eat right. You know, it's eatright.org yeah. as the website. <laughs> it's like that is, uh, you yeah. know, that's. That's the, that's the thinking, right? It's like, we're going to teach people how to eat right and, and we're going to eat right. You know, like, I mean, I remember when I went back to school to become a dietitian, having been a journalist already for six or seven years, covering food and nutrition and getting more and more sort of ensconced in this idea of like helping quote unquote, end the O word epidemic, you know, and like all of this, this very weight stigmatizing toxic you know, diet culture, thinking about food and bodies. And when I went back to school to become a dietitian, that just got amplified up to like 20, you know, it was already at a 10 and it got turned up, like the dial got doubled because now I was in this environment where I felt like I had to perform and be, you know, do the the perfect eating thing, right. And be the model of a dietitian that I thought existed. And, you know, turns out so many of the people that were in my program with me were struggling with their own relationships with food too and also feeling so put upon and feeling like they had to be doing it quote unquote right and you know that there there's this sort of unattainable ideal of how a dietitian is supposed to eat and how a dietitian is supposed to relate to food that I think really trips up so many of us. And probably a lot of the folks listening are working to come out of that, if not have, you know, feel really solid in their recovery, maybe are are in process. Um, but probably, you know, most of the folks in this community, I would I would imagine have started to question what we learned in school. But then I think a lot of times there's a reflexive sort of jumping from that into like, okay, what's the exact opposite of that, right? What What can yeah. I do that's, you know, completely antithetical to that, which I think has a real, a real place, you know, and I think that's, that's a phase that I see oftentimes with clients too, who are recovering is that they've been in this, you know, orthorexic way of thinking and this right and wrong, black and white, you know, I'm eating right, or I'm being bad or whatever. And then, you know, they let go of that and they they need to swing to the side of abundance and let just fully letting go and not having rules. And that's like an important developmental stage I think in healing your relationship with food Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I think you know eventually with whether it's you know with a person who's recovering or whether it's with a dietitian in our practice who's sort of trying to find a path that works for us we do kind of end up coming to this third way and you Mm -hmm. can't really push when the third way happens and you can't you know legislate that it's going to happen right because I think especially for people who are recovering they want to skip the step of like feeling really free with food and like all of the scary unwieldy kind of feelings that come up with that, you know, they want to skip through that and just get to the part where they're like, quote unquote, a balanced eater, which in their mind, when they're thinking of it like that usually is like, Oh, I just never want sweets. Oh, I just, you know, it's like this sort of picture of what supposed balance looks like. That's actually really coming from diet culture and conditioned from diet culture thinking. And with you know, those of us in in practice as dietitians, I think it might look like, you know, we're thinking that, you know, there's going to be some sort of balance that, you know, it, again, it's kind of coming from a diet culture place. And really, it's, you know, getting to that that third way of like, Asking yourself what really works and what makes sense and what feels good to you and what you believe and the values you want to live in your relationship with food and your body or in your relationship with your business, whether that's, you know, a value of, um, you know, supporting a certain type of food or whether that's a value of allowing yourself freedom to always eat what you want because you know where the road leads when you don't have that freedom, you know, and, and all of that is, kind of worth investigating and and working with. And I think with dietitians, you know, especially when we're working with marginalized communities or with people with different intersecting identities, there are some nuanced, tricky things that come up around that, you know, because we might have folks who have chronic illness. They're, trying to manage and food might have to play a role in that to some degree. Um, Or we might have folks who are transgender and have gender dysphoria that they're trying to manage through exercise and through trying to look a certain way. And like, how do we navigate that? You know, especially as people who don't have that identity, don't have that lived experience of gender dysphoria. And, you know, and when we're trying to get people, help people let go of that um, binary thinking and diet culture thinking of you know elevating certain types of bodies and kind of denigrating others you know what how do we navigate that piece right and and bringing in this um, sort of sense of freedom around letting your body be what it is and accepting your body for its natural size and shape when you're transgender and you have gender dysphoria that makes you feel like you know you're not in the body that you're meant to be in like you know so having to have these difficult conversations with clients and sort of wrestle with those questions and and you know to me like with this question of gender dysphoria i think one thing that i often come back to is what are your values like what are what are the things that you want to live by and how does your belief about how your body quote unquote should look and this goes for everyone not just people with gender dysphoria but um but i think this has been a helpful way to frame it for folks who are in that place is like, you know, if you recognize that you're you've inherited some patriarchal, cis heteropatriarchal beliefs about how, you know, masculine or feminine bodies are quote unquote supposed to look. Mm-hmm. And you're, you know, you've been harmed by that, right? You've been harmed by cis heteropatriarchy and you're trying to divest from that you know, maybe it's worth looking at, like what your standards of beauty and standards of how your body, quote unquote, should look might be coming from these toxic and harmful ideals, you know, and what of those can you let go of? What of those feel like you need to hold on to for for safety and support? Because, you know, you need to be um, able to move safely through the world, right? And, you know, I'm not an expert in this. I'm not an expert in transgender health, but this is just what I've learned from clients and colleagues in navigating these questions. And I think that's just one example of like how to navigate these intersecting identities. And, you know, when it comes to, comes to chronic illness, which I have personal experience with, like that is, that's another area where there's a lot of nuance and questions to be asked. And, you know, again, kind of coming back to the person's values and sort of understanding you know helping someone understand like how to how to make decisions that live in line with their values without rec- you know without legislating to them what they're what mm. they have to do right well you know maybe making some recommendations from what the scientific literature says from what you know to be true from your experience as a clinician or what your own lived experience but also holding space for the fact that they are their own person and yes. they you know, they get to make their own decisions ultimately, and they can also try different things and recognize that something doesn't work for them and then come back and try something else, you know, but it's also, I think to me, the challenge of that is recognizing that my values as a clinician and as a activist and a human are not to do harm by, by you know, telling people that their body needs to be a certain size, by selling weight loss, by selling food phobic ideas by, you know, by buying into diet culture in any way for my own practice, right? And so how do I reconcile that with the fact that some of the people I'm working with are still, you know, in diet culture to whatever extent and needing to come out of that. And so trying to meet them where they are and, you know, have these conversations along the way, while helping someone recognize that, being anti-diet doesn't mean being anti-dieter yes. you know i'm not I'm, I'm working to end the system and help people divest from the system i'm not against them for making choices that are in line with diet culture because that's what we're all conditioned to do and it's so understandable
0: You know, Christy, as you were talking, I was really paying attention to a lot of the parallel processes that we can notice in the ways in which we work with our clients and communities and then the inner work that we're invited to do. So, for example, you know, this kind of desire to get to a place, you know, a place of maybe comfort or a place of doing the work, quote unquote, right, and that when we kind of skip through the hard stuff and the uncomfortable stuff, that we actually miss the the richness of understanding our own experiences as we move through the inevitable human stages of change and and discovery and learning and unlearning and dismantling and remantling. I don't, that's not even a word, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> okay. And as we kind of do the, the, the wrestling and the letting go and the wrestling and the letting go. And as you were talking, I was like, oh, wow, you're actually talking about the inner process as well. That, um, you know, that, that a lot of dietitians and therapists and health professionals that we have this kind of positioning of ourselves where um, where we become part of the power structures that we're actually aiming to dismantle when we're not doing mm-hmm. our parallel inner work at the same time yeah so as you were talking I was like oh my god yes this is this you're talking about you know in terms of maybe our um, diet culture recovery you know th- th- there is this really messy stage that that can happen quite quickly or it can happen a little further down the line depending on people's kind of readiness or, or openness or um, trauma experiences or embodied experiences or you know all those different ways that we that we show up as humans in the world um, but that one um, one certainly firm invitation that I am you know sit, sitting with myself and I would extend to anybody who wants to join me in this is that you know to, to to be really thoughtful and cognizant that what we are actually for a lot of people listening and a lot of people in our communities a lot of the things that we 've been talking about for years now if we haven't done our own inner work and especially now that we are being called to do anti-racism work and to really deeply understand the the roots of racism and how that is inextricably linked to diet culture and body image and the way in which we show up in the world or the way in which we are allowed to show up in the world, you know, the way the um, and to really get messy in there and that what it feels like to feel as if I don't know where the end is. And to yet at the same time have this yearning for closure, this yearning to kind of get there and how pivotal and important this can be to really understand what we are asking from our clients that, you know, unless we're kind of doing this wrestling and the letting go and the wrestling and the letting go, um, that, you know, I think it can really enrich our experiences as health professionals, as humans, and really set us solidly on the path, our compass facing north, so that we are bringing to the world um, our values and our actions in in deliberate ways, which actually are collectively helpful in dismantling the structures that are so harmful. Anyway, that was a big long speech. (laughs) what I'm saying is do your work
1: (laughs) do your work yes and I feel like that is a call that has that I've had to answer again and again you know it's like the wrestling and the letting go even comes with the call to do the work you know sometimes like just like I can't you know and there's there's a, a period of sort of just putting it down and Integrating, and then you know something else calls me to do the work. You know, now with the situation in the U.S., I feel called to do more anti-racism work and and recognizing. I shared this on an episode of my podcast that's going out next week. So who knows when this will air? But you know, shared that um, I recognized that like I had been doing the anti-racism work you know, three or four years ago when Hayes, the the Health at Every Size community really started to push for that and bring that into conferences and into trainings and everything we did. And, you know, the ASDA leadership board getting anti-oppression training. And so, you know, doing quite a few trainings all in a row and around the same time and feeling like, okay, like I'm, I get it now. I'm in, you know, I'm clicked in to sort of what anti-racism work is. And, you know, going on in my life, trying to use that and practice that information and, and continuing to learn, but in a bit more of a passive way, honestly, reading books, reading blog posts and Instagrams and not doing as much of that messy, real work of like taking trainings and interactive things where I'm kind of called to, you know, really get deeper on rooting out white supremacy in my life. And yes, yeah, this moment, you know, this cultural moment, we're in now. I think has made me recognize that that I was doing it in a, a more passive way than I would like, and to sort of ramp up the activeness of it again, and that you know bring bring anti-racism work into a more daily practice again, and you know so it's it feels like I you know wrestled and let go even with doing the work, and that's that's you know something to kind of reckon with too, is that I want to not be entirely letting go of this at any mm. point. And, you know, how can I engage in self-care while doing this work so that I can be able to do it, you know, long-term because nobody <laughs> nobody uh-huh. has real use for an anti-racism activist who kind of like, you know, blows it all in, in one, you know, week or two period. And then it's like, oh, I'm spent, you know, I'm exhausted, right? We need to, and, and from what I've been learning from anti-racism educators, it's like white people are not conditioned with the same, you know, I think this is a point of of, uh, Robin DiAngelo and white fragility, actually, that white people don't have the same tolerance for racial conversations, race related conversations that people of color and black people like and indigenous people have to because of their identity and how the world treats them and the fact that from a very young age, they have to think about these things, even if their parents want to shield them from these these discussions, they really mm-hmm. can't because of how the world treats them. And, you know, white folks, we have the privilege to kind of go through the world in this bubble in this, you know, white privilege bubble that doesn't make us have to engage with those those topics. And so it's hard and it feels exhausting to white folks who haven't developed that that kind of muscle you know that that people of color have had to develop and so how can we develop it how can we start to engage and do that work more continuously so that it doesn't feel so taxing and it doesn't feel like we're going to burn out at any time you know And, and that doing the work consistently I think is a huge part of the work too is learning how to do it without burning out
0: yeah that's so true you're you're spot on in saying that um you know it's a very very typical for um more privileged folks to get really busy in the doing and i think what it does is it is it kind of tricks us into complacency in some ways in an ironic way mm-hmm. it's like oh i'm okay okay i'm being called to action therefore i will do 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 rather mm-hmm. than what you and I are kind of talking about, and that is the, the, the more contemplative, interrogative. And yes, you don't, you're not necessarily going to be unpacking your process and interrogating on Instagram. No, <laughs> Nobody will know. This is the thing. Maybe your accountability group or your accountability partner or your supervisor, they will know what you're doing and they're ones who can really encourage you and really bolster your sense of um, doing this work in a, in a way that is paced and really Mm -hmm. honors our capacity remembering that our capacity changes moment to moment. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but that, the, the actually interrogative work like that messy, um, wrestling work will not be seen. And what we will need to remind ourselves in order to do the unseen work, the worthwhile work, um, in order to yeah pace ourselves. And I was, I've been thinking a lot, Christy, I'm so interested in your thoughts on this, how um, my supervisor a couple of weeks ago was asking me, you know, um, about how mindfulness and interoceptive awareness can really, we were just having this really, really interesting discussion about how we can use existing practices and existing skills to be able to know, to be able to get really familiar with our edges and to understand Um, and become familiar with discomfort without becoming attached to it or without turning away and to become much more familiar with um, the interoceptive qualities that show up for us, which which can be such wise guides when it comes to, you know, in this moment, is this the moment to lean in, to lean back, to sit down, to be quiet? Or is this the moment to speak up? And how those very foundational skills, which are very much often, not always, but often part of doing um, anti-diet work, health at every size work, um, intuitive eating, non-diet, like however, whatever kind of set of principles you choose to kind of lead with, that this is really pivotal and really foundational if we're going to um, have our... I don't know, it's almost like a form of fitness. I think it's like, if we're going to be interreceptive and be um, self-respectful in this, if we're going to do, if we do, again, it kind of loops us back. If we're going to do any good in the world, we have to be able to um, be cognizant and be thoughtful about how we show up, when to sit back, when to speak up. So
1: yeah.
0: the, I was just yeah, yeah, thinking yes. about that.
1: I know. I think that's such a such an important thing to consider too. is like how can you bring? Because I think a lot of us too, who are dietitians in this area, have done some of our own work around this yes. as it applies to food, right? And and oftentimes it you know has spilled over into other areas of life of learning how to trust our inner wisdom, our interoceptive awareness, our intuition with regard to you know, what's what's going on in the room with a client or what someone in our life is bringing up for us, a colleague or, you know, someone that you interact with in a way that feels, you know, sticky somehow and kind of figuring out how to learn from that and how to trust that body wisdom that comes up around different issues in life that don't just have to do with food. I think it's the same thing with, you know, with learning how to engage in these conversations about race or other forms of oppression that you know it's we don't have the language or you know for for white folks mostly we don't we aren't conditioned with the kind of language to um know how to talk about these things but mm. we do have that interceptive awareness that we can start to tune into to notice okay you know what's this feeling in my body is this a feeling of um fight or flight because i'm feeling activated because my white fragility is being yeah. you know pushed on, right? And I, I'm, you know, my privilege is is being threatened. Or is this a genuine feeling of, you know, someone's violating my boundaries in a way that has nothing to do with white supremacy, but with, you know, interpersonal needs and um, kind of sovereignty, you know, and, mm. and how can I sort of protect my human needs and my boundaries while also engaging in this very deep work that is, going to bring up a lot for me that's going to challenge me that's going to make me feel um, you know sometimes attacked but how can I distinguish that from the you know sort of a a feeling of uh, discomfort or destabilization or you know being under attack that's coming from real learning that needs to be done real unlearning that needs to be done of, of about white supremacy versus you know what's what's the interpersonal stuff because you know people of color, black people, people of all stripes are human beings, are, you know, are not a monolith, right? So many of the anti-racism educators i learned from have been saying in the past few weeks, especially, you know, black people are not a monolith. We don't all think the same about this. Here's my <laughs> point of view, but listen to other people too. listen to a diversity of perspectives on this. Right. And, you know, just recognizing that, yeah, no, no, Nobody who's doing this anti-racism education is, you know, representative of their race and, and people don't all think the same about this stuff, right? And so what what might be coming up for you that's like, oh, this particular person's way of doing things maybe isn't a fit for me. And, you know, maybe some of that is coming from white supremacy, maybe some of that is coming from just interpersonal not a fitness or a need for for a different kind of boundary. And all of that I think is so complicated and messy and requires so much Just constant revisiting, but I think that interceptive awareness, like you said, can be such a a powerful guide to tune into to just start to recognize. Oh, this feeling kind of feels like that other time when you know it was about it was about this issue rather than that issue, and starting to use that as a guide.
0: Yeah, I think it. um, I think it also attunes us to those moments that we do something because we feel like we should. As Mm -hmm. opposed to that it's good timing or that it's coming from a thoughtful and genuine place, but more that we can become much more attuned to what is going to be most effective, Um, you know, rather than what I think I should be doing because everyone else seems to be doing it and you know, and of course, mm-hmm. you know, um, comparisons and perfectionism and performing all, all um, you know, fit very ne- neatly under white supremacist systems, mm-hmm. um, you know, so just noting where these things do pop up for us as dietitians, um, how it shows up even in our anti-diet work um, and how mm-hmm. we can just be really thoughtful about the way forward.
1: Yeah, oh, Absolutely.
0: Christy I wanted to ask you a little bit about you know um, one thing that you um, that you talk a lot about you've written a lot about um, and you actually have a course about is an, anti, anti or anti diet messaging and so I'm curious to hear a little bit more about your thoughts as to how um, we can be uh, thoughtful about extending anti-diet messaging towards, um, you know, towards in, in the direction of anti-oppression messaging. And, you know, obviously this is not a jump kind of jump the fence really quickly and let's kind of get these messages out. But what do you, what, what do you see as maybe the work that people who are already actively involved in anti-diet messaging, as a lot of people in our community already are, or, or um, you know, eating disorder recovery messaging, for example, what's the kind of extension of that work, do you think, that can give people a little bit of direction as to where to go next?
1: Yeah, such a good question. And this is something that I've been asking myself and, and preparing to add into my anti-diet message course because, you know, I touch on it a little bit, but it's not, you know, I'm realizing that I want to really expand that section and have have more resources on that because I think it is, it's so intertwined, right? It's, you know, we really can't do anti-diet work that is truly able to help people divest from diet culture without also helping them divest from white supremacy and, you know, from patriarchy and from, transphobia and and all of these other forms of oppression, you know, racism is the thing that is most on people's minds right now, but I think all of these other forms of oppression are are tied in and in some ways with anti-diet work. Um, And so, you know, I think one thing to sort of keep in mind, I guess, for people who already have been practicing this and doing the work on their anti-diet messaging and, and, you know, being sensitive to people's needs with, you know, eating disorders and disordered eating and, um, higher weight folks and, you know, having inclusive language around, around that, you know, eradicating weight stigma from your language is, is just thinking about that as, you know, extending that out to other areas of oppression, right. And being sensitive and mindful to what's coming up for people you're learning from, you know, what are, just as we learn, like, saying numbers, you know, it's kind of like an early stage, um, anti-diet message thing we tend to learn is, you know, naming weight numbers can be really triggering for someone with an eating disorder, activating, if you don't like the word triggering, but, you know, um, really can put a person in that sort of fight or flight place in that place of like, oh my God, I have to do this. I have to do something, you know, like Mm -hmm. saying a weight number, you know, someone weighed X pounds, um, might, resonate in a person with an eating disorders head is like, oh my God, they're sicker than I am. I have to get sicker in order to deserve care or, um, you know, what are they doing? Let me listen for what they're doing so that I can know so that I can get to that weight. Right. So we learn that by, you know, some of us by, by experience, by recognizing, oh yeah, that used to trigger me when I was going through that. But a lot of us, I think also, you know, I myself didn't even know that those things were triggers or that they, that they had a name that they were potentially activating to people with eating disorders. Even though I myself had an eating disorder history, I didn't recognize and learn that until I started working with people with eating disorders and learning from them and learning from the literature and the the training that I got, the supervision that I got and sort of recognizing, oh yeah, actually that was, that was an issue for me back then too. That did make me feel really activated. Um, so, you know, kind of taking that same approach of like, can I, how, how can I learn how to be the most sensitive possible to this population and, and just starting to do that work, you know, starting to listen to what people are saying and the the things that people find problematic. You know, I just, um, earlier today did a post of something that I learned from, um, an anti-racism course by Monique Melton, who was talking about cultural appropriation.
0: Oh, and, I saw you know, that. Very interesting. Yes. Fascinating. So fascinating. That, that fascinating. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, you know, cultural appropriation is a term that I had heard before and sort of knew some of the basic broad strokes of it, which are like, you know, taking something that is an artifact or a practice that has meaning in a certain culture, say black culture and, you know, appropriating that using that as a white person or as a person outside of that culture um, without the, the same meaning, you know, without, without being a part of that culture. And so therefore without ever possibly having the same meaning behind it, one really Um, powerful and and sort of common example I think that people give is like Native American headdresses. Yes. when, When people dress up for Halloween in a headdress, that's cultural appropriation that really is denigrating to something that is actually like a, has a, you know, an artifact that has significance and meaning in Native American culture. And of course, Native American culture is not monolithic either. There are many different nations within the umbrella of Native American peoples, but um, you know, having a, a headdress is there's some sort of significance to that for different groups of people. And so, you know, having a white person take that and wear it without any of the knowledge or understanding that comes with it, without you know being the person who is um, you know within certain cultures, there's only there's certain people who wear that particular style or wear a wear a headdress of of any kind, right? And so, like, without being the person who is sort of, um, given to, to play that role in your culture. Right. And you're just appropriating this and using it for fashion or using it for a laugh. Right. And so, you know, so there's, there's examples like that, that she went through and then, um, you know, she was talking about like different hairstyles and head wraps that, um you know are are part of black culture that really are not you know when when she sees that and when other black folks she knows see that it's it, it doesn't feel good right it's not it doesn't resonate um it feels like like appropriation because people are using these, these artifacts of culture without understanding the the context in which they come from and without being a part of that community. Mm -hmm. And then she shared this thing that blew my mind that I'd never heard before, where she said, you know, that um, this idea of white women wanting to get a booty and like (laughs) fitness professionals marketing, uh, what was it? Booty building programs is what she called them. And I was like, oh my gosh, I, yes, like. I don't really follow that world anymore. I hear about it a little bit from my clients, but when she said booty building programs, I immediately knew what she was talking about. You know, booty building programs for white women is a form of cultural appropriation because, you know, having a a big booty is the thing in black culture that's been celebrated and... You know in the 90s and and before and various times throughout history there's been you know sort of a denigration of having a big butt and in white culture you know when i was growing up that was it was certainly like a bad thing you know Mm -hmm. wasn't seen as a good thing to have a big butt it was like you wanted the flattest butt possible that was the the white cultural standard at the time and now we have this you know emphasis on the big booty and these, you know, fitness professionals selling programs to white women to try to get a big booty. And like, you know, that's, you know, my sort of thinking on this too, after she, because she kind of discussed that, you know, pretty briefly. And then we moved on to some other things, but you know I was reflecting on it afterwards and thinking like, yeah, these, you know, quote unquote booty building programs that are about like muscular, you know, getting a more muscular butt really, and, and exercises to try to bulk up your butt. It's kind of saying that a butt is not good enough unless it is muscular, right? And that's that's another thing that comes from diet culture and white supremacy, you know, that it's this emphasis on muscularity. And the white woman big booty aesthetic also is, you know, comes along with all these other diet culture aesthetics too. It's kind of like appropriating just this one thing from black culture and tacking on to the white woman mm. diet culture aesthetic that really is the oppressive aesthetic that, that applies, you know, that gets um, sort of put upon people of all ethnicities, right, that, that it's this white supremacist beauty ideal that you're supposed to be you know, super thin and muscular, but also now, you know, in the you know, 2010s and, and 20s now have, you're also supposed to have a big butt, but while remaining super thin and muscular and having like big boobs and all these other Eurocentric features, you know? And so it's really, it's really problematic because it's appropriating this thing that, that is, you know, has been celebrated in black culture and denigrated in white culture and now saying, okay, white women when you do this, it's beautiful. And, Uh. you know, some of my, I had posted about this on Instagram and some of the comments that I was receiving from people, you know, some of whom are black women saying like, yeah, you know, for so much of my life, I was denigrated for having this big butt and it was not celebrated. And now I'm seeing like these white women being celebrated for it. And it's really frustrating. It's really, it's really painful to see that because, You know, it's this, it's this thing that another thing that got appropriated and that it's okay if white people do it, but there's this double standard, you know.
0: It's also, like you say, it's almost the picking and the choosing. It's like, it's, it's not the um, embracing or accepting or the wholeness. It's saying, yeah, that part of you can kind of stay over there. And this part of you, I think we can use for our own gain or for our own purposes of worthiness and value. And that's just so messed up in so many ways. Oh my goodness. Uh,
1: Totally. And it's really, it's, you know, I was thinking about this too, in the context of body liberation. Mm -hmm. I think one important um, aim of body liberation is to make it okay to have whatever body you have and whatever body you know, all bodies are celebrated. All aspects of all bodies are celebrated and respected and accepted. Nobody is made to feel shame for, you know, whatever aspects of their body that, that don't, you know, that we got to blow up the cultural ideal, that there's any sort of way that a body quote unquote should, should be. look. Yep. Yeah. And I think this idea of like, you know, wanting to get, wanting, either feeling, either looking down on someone for the way their body is, you know, size and shape and different aspects of it, or looking at it and saying, oh, this person has what I don't have and therefore I'm less than and I'm bad Mm -hmm. and, and, or wanting to like get what they have and like, Ooh, I want a butt like hers. I need to get it through, Mm. you know, exercise. All of that is actually a product of white supremacy. Oh my God. Yes. Sort of like colonizing and, and yes. And, or like, oh my denigrating yourself because you're not good enough, you know, because you're comparing and lifting up someone as the standard and better than. So, again, it goes back to that black and white kind of thinking mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. you know, one up, one down, and power over. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, I think mm-hmm. there's probably a million beauty standards we could. Address that have a similar provenance uh-huh. you know the, the, that have have been culturally appropriated from from some group that is marginalized and you know repurposed and and into this weird Frankenstein white beauty ideal that exists now and and it's it's so problematic and it's such a such an obvious Extension of white supremacy that needs to oh, end.
0: You know, I, I thank you so much for stepping, stepping. Well, me and all of us through that because I had some pennies really drop then, or some, or some kind of ideas that I was starting to kind of process and put together. And I'm like, ah, okay, I've got a better understanding about how that fits with that, and how you know, the um, colonialization and and the stealing of and the just the arrogance of taking that is so rooted in, um in colonialism. Yes.
1: Mm, lots to think about. And, and one thing that, one thing that, Oh, I was going to just say nice. one thing that Monique Mountain said, and every I, I would recommend everyone listening, go check her out and take her classes and stuff. Cause she's amazing and has such great, she's like the best metaphors and analogies. I feel like she, she has a, a lot of great, ways of explaining things around white supremacy and racism that just really make them click for me anyway and for a lot of people I think too Um, but she said that you know for for folks who are white who are who have that sort of impulse of cultural appropriation to work on appreciation without appropriation you know to work on being able to appreciate and admire qualities of people that are different than you you are, but not feel the need to, to take Take and own and grab. Yes.
0: That grabbing and grasping and attachment is, it's, yeah, it's all part of power systems, isn't it? It's all the wanting Mm -hmm. the power over, um, Ah, okay. Lots to think about. I'm going to go to my journal next and sign (laughs) up for Monique's course. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) These are (laughs) my next two action steps, right? And I'm sure for, you know, dietitians listening, we can, um, you know, maybe a start around that is is around, you know, um, body and beauty standards, but also around food. How we have Mm -hmm. stolen and taken culture, food culture from people and taken what we want and then left the rest um, and how that has really um, you know, de-indigenized a lot of, um, folks, uh, cultural foods and attachment to their own land and, um, totally. yeah, foods and, and eating wellness practices. And, oh my God. Yeah. Oh, there's so many examples. Oh my goodness. Okay. Mm-hmm. Excellent. You know, I mean, Chrissy, the, the, the ironic thing with you and I is we literally have talked for hours. Like in the past, we have, we've spent a lot of one-on-one time together, which is just so precious. So, so precious mm-hmm. to me. Um, and thank you so, so much. You know, so I'm sure that everybody listening is familiar with you, but how about you just just give us a reminder about where people can find you across different platforms if you don't mind.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much too, for having me. This is such a great pleasure always to talk with you. Um, people can find me online at christyharrison.com. If you're listening to this on, you know, a podcast platform of some kind, you can look up food psych on the platform once you're done listening here and go check out my podcast. Um, it's on all the, all the podcatchers and I'm also on Instagram. Uh, you can find links to all of that on my website to christyharrison.com.
0: Perfect. Again, Christy, thank you so much for um, bringing your amazing wisdom and insight and experience and, um, you know, maybe for... um uh, you know, fellow white dietitians who are listening, you know, extending on these conversations, you know, not not getting into people's direct messages, not asking um, black and indigenous people of colour for their labour. Let's start having this conversation between each other with the understanding that we don't have the answers, but we can do this wrestling together. And when we wrestle in communities together, we can hold each other accountable. We can, um, you know, really, um, learn in a way that contributes towards um, collective um, furthering, like moving, moving forward together. So let, let's, let's yes. get on and do it. Let's do it. Uh. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much again, Christy, and I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons licence. Have a great day, everyone.